Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. In 2005 in Medicine Hat, a town of less than 60,000, the Richardson family was enjoying their move from Ontario, a middle-class family living in the suburbs. Their 11-year-old daughter, who we'll call J.R., attended Catholic school where she was an honor student. J.R. had long dark hair, a pretty white smile, and perfectly arched brows that framed her dark eyes. Many preteens and teenagers spread their wings as they discover who they are. In J.R.'s case, she donned black clothes, encased her eyes with heavy black eyeliner, and painted her lips blood red. At only 12 years old, J.R. had embraced the goth lifestyle. Living nearby in a trailer with his mother, Jeremy Steinke had also gone through a transformation from awkward teenager to a 23-year-old man. Gone was a sandy brown hair that curled around his neck, now shaved to a stubble. His once cheerful bright eyes now ringed with black eyeliner and he too embraced the goth lifestyle. Acquaintance at school described him as a good kid, someone who was generous and spent what money he had on gifts. Others would say that he had a troubled side and that he was manipulative. Jeremy enjoyed going to the theater to watch horror movies, a place where he could bear his sadistic side in the darkness between the aisles, a place where others screamed and recoiled at the gruesome violence, but he laughed out loud. Jeremy was passionate about music and played guitar in a heavy metal band while working in construction. In the spring of 2007, he and his girlfriend broke up. He didn't take it well and spent weeks mourning the loss of their relationship. Then he met J.R. The couple, with a 13-year age difference, met at an all-ages punk show. The two were drawn to each other like moths to a flame. The problem is, if a moth gets too close to the flame, it may get burnt. J.R. and Jeremy belonged to social networking sites. Her nickname was Runaway Devil, and his was Soul Leader. Jeremy alleged that he was a 300-year-old werewolf, and J.R. posted a photo of herself holding a handgun. Jeremy was in love. He had found his soulmate, and to prove it, he gave her a vial of his blood. Jeremy's friend suggested he stay away from J.R. 
that she was too young. But Jeremy didn't think twice about the age difference. His mother and father had a huge age gap, and his mother had always told him, love is what mattered. Jeremy liked how J.R. remembered the little things. One day he had a craving for a particular kind of suit, and she made a point of buying it and surprising him. The attention made him feel special, and he went out of his way to make her feel special too. J.R. dressed in black with fishnet stockings and black boots, but she was missing a black corset and wanted one so badly. So Jeremy purchased one, put in his backpack, and was waiting for the right moment to surprise her. J.R.'s parents, Mark and Deborah, couldn't help but notice the change in their daughter. J.R. never brought Jeremy home to meet them, but her parents monitored her online communication, and it wasn't long before they forbid her to see him. They grounded her, took away her makeup, her stereo, her computer, and her freedom. The family went to counseling, and JR's behavior improved, so her parents gave her back her computer. She was furious with the way her parents treated her, and shared online that she wanted her parents dead. Her friends didn't take her seriously. It was just stuff teenagers say. In March 2006, Runaway Devil sent a message to Soul Eater. I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Jeremy responded with, Well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with, like, details and stuff. On Saturday, April 22nd, Jeremy called his friend Jordan three times, asking him to help scare JR's father, Mark. But it was more than a scare he had planned. The Calgary Herald reported that he told Jordan, We're doing it today. Jordan didn't know what he was talking about and asked him, You're doing what? Jeremy replied, We're going to kill them today. Jordan turned him down, saying he wasn't a killer. Besides, he thought Jeremy was just blowing off steam and didn't take him seriously. That evening at the Richardson family home, Mark had parked his new white truck in the driveway. The evening weather was perfect for a family barbecue. The next-door neighbor's son was a friend of Tyler's and joined them. At around 8 p.m., Jeremy showed up at Jordan's home to pick him up, but he refused to go. Angry, Jeremy slammed the door and stormed off. Later, Jeremy phoned Jordan and threatened him, telling him that if he ever told the police, he would kill him, and Jordan believed him. Jeremy's favorite movie was Natural Born Killers, a love story between a couple who became serial killers. That night, he got together with friends to watch the movie. 
One of his friends noticed him in the kitchen, pacing back and forth, and overheard him on the phone saying, I don't want to do this. Are you sure you want to do this? Sitting back down, he slammed a flat of 24 beer. He compared the movie to the plan he and J.R. had, and commented that in the movie, the young brother was spared, but that's where they would be different. J.R. was going to kill her brother. The friends tried to talk Jeremy out of it, but he wouldn't hear it. He said they didn't understand that he found someone to be with who was crazy, just like himself. He downed a bottle of wine and later some cocaine. After a relaxing evening, the Richardson family went to bed. Afterwards, J.R. phoned Jeremy and told him to come over. Still high and drunk, he was wearing a black hoodie and carrying a knife when he climbed through the basement window. He tiptoed up the stairs. The treads creaked beneath him. JR's mom, Deborah, got up to go to the washroom and heard something. She began walking down the stairs when she spotted Jeremy and screamed at the top of her lungs. Mark heard her and instantly jumped out of bed and went running down the stairs. A screwdriver gripped in his hand. Now it was Jeremy's turn to scream. Mark swung the screwdriver and just missed him. Mark tackled him to the ground and managed to stab him twice. But then Jeremy overpowered him and wrestled the screwdriver away. Mark grabbed at his face and shoved his thumbs deep into his eyes. The men grappled. Mark fought with everything he had. Laying on the floor, he looked up at Jeremy standing above him and asked him why. He responded, because it's how you treated your daughter and she wants it this way. Jeremy stabbed him 24 times, then left the knife with his blade buckled and its tip bent, laying next to him. Mark was 42. Then in a frenzy, he stabbed Deborah. She fell to the floor, frozen. He continued the attack. After 12 stab wounds, he stopped. Deborah died at 48. Jeremy walked upstairs. J.R. was in her young brother's room. As Jeremy stood and watched, she tried to strangle Tyler, then stabbed him twice in the face and twice in the chest, then slit his throat. Blood soaked his bed and covered the walls the ceiling, his toys. Little Tyler was eight. Then J.R. asked Jeremy to wait 15 minutes. He went outside to get some fresh air, then panicked and took off running and didn't stop 
until he was home. J.R. took a cab and showed up at his place. The couple went to a friend's house, acted normal, except for Jeremy's noticeable, swollen left eye. They sat on the couch, laughing and kissing, and told others about the murders. CBC News reported that Jeremy asked his friend Casey Lancaster to drive his grey Dodge truck somewhere, park it, and clean it. She didn't know why, and she didn't ask. Casey drove it behind a building into some thick bushes, then cleaned the stain on the seat the best she could. She noticed a folding knife and was worried it might get stolen and took it with her. Back at the house, a friend of Casey's had decided to run away from home, so Casey agreed to drive her and another friend to a nearby leader in Saskatchewan, a two-hour drive away. Jeremy and J.R. asked if they could go along. All five of them piled into Casey's green master truck. When they arrived in Leader, her truck was on empty and the gas stations were closed. They parked in a field and crashed for the night. The next morning, they drove to the gas station and Casey went inside. Jeremy noticed she seemed to be gone for a long time. One of them bought a newspaper. The Richardson family murders were on the front page. That afternoon, Tyler's friend who lived next door stopped by and knocked on the front door. No one answered. So he peeked in the basement window and spotted what looked like a body. Terrified, he ran, his little legs scurrying across the front lawn, back home to tell his parents. By 1.30 p.m., police had arrived at the House of Horrors. They noticed a family photo of four and wondered, had J.R. been abducted? Sunday at 4.30 p.m., the neighborhood gathered to watch as crime scene investigators, dressed in white suits with hoods and booties, removed the bodies of Mark, Deborah, and Tyler, each wrapped in a purple blanket. The next morning at 7.45 a.m., Bill Clary arrived at the school where he was a custodian to see three police cars surrounding a green truck and his occupants being arrested. He didn't know yet that he was witnessing history, that perhaps one of Canada's youngest murderers had just been captured. Inside the truck, officers found the newspaper, a folding knife, and Deborah's purse. It had been less than 16 hours since the murders. Jeremy thought back and wondered if Casey had ratted them out. That same morning, a resident medicine hat woke up to the news report of the murders and a description of Jeremy's missing truck. 
The Ottawa News reported that he'd noticed a similar truck had been abandoned by a building in some bushes and called police. On Monday, both Jeremy and JR were charged with three counts of first-degree murder. He is an adult. She is a juvenile. Canadian law prohibits the naming of juveniles. While being held in the cells at the Medicine Hat Remand Center, they were not permitted to speak to each other, but they were allowed to write letters. After numerous love letters back and forth, Jeremy asked her, Will you marry me? She responded with, You make me so happy. Yes, I would love to. Jeremy walked into court, his light brown hair now growing out and short. In another courtroom, J.R. walked in, with her hands shackled, wearing a blue prison jumpsuit. She hung her head, her long hair hiding the evil within. Casey was also charged for being an accessory after the fact. In early May, Jeremy was loaded into a van headed for Calgary. An undercover officer was placed in the van with him. A buddy for the ride. Transcripts of Jeremy's conversation with the undercover officer revealed that soon, Jeremy was sharing details. He told them that as soon as he was released, they were going to get married, that they were going to get rings tattooed on their fingers and have a gothic wedding. Then they talked about guns and knives, and Jeremy said he'd rather use knives, and that he had a Japanese katana swore that he'd had to pawn and how one day he hoped to travel to Japan to get an authentic one. Then he reflected that once he was convicted, he probably wasn't going to be able to leave the country, and that if he got paroled, he probably wouldn't be allowed to have sharp objects. He thought he'd never go to jail, but then he met J.R., and she was his soulmate, and that he would do anything for her. He said that if only the police had pulled him over for driving impaired that night, he wouldn't have made it to the Richardsons. In his words, he admitted that he had some mental problems too, and that perhaps if he'd been sober, he would have tried to talk her out of it. Instead, he kept his word to her. Then he asked the officer if he'd seen the movie Natural Born Killers and said that it was the best love story of all time and that he and J.R. had just started their own love legacy. He reflected that you have to watch who you talk to. That's where he went wrong. He trusted his best friends with his life and they betrayed him and that J.R. told too many people she wanted her parents dead, so naturally everyone pointed their finger at her. Jeremy said if he could do it over again, there were things he would do differently, like not use a friend to take them to Saskatchewan, that he should have stolen a vehicle and driven east, 
sold the vehicle, and bought a boat. As the van trip ended, he looked out and saw that he'd arrived at the psychiatric ward. The Edmonton Journal reported that at J.R.'s trial in 2007, the seven men and five women on the jury showed no emotion as they flipped through a black binder of gruesome photographs from the crime scene. A DNA expert testified that both J.R.'s blood and her brother Tyler's were found on the handle of a knife in his bedroom. In November, J.R. was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. As a juvenile, she received the maximum sentence of 10 years, with the first four years to be served in a psychiatric hospital. In 2008, at Jeremy's trial, testimony revealed that Mark's blood was found on his clothing and that Tyler's blood was found on one of his shoelaces. He, too, was found guilty on all three charges of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. The sentences will be served concurrently. Casey pled guilty to a lesser charge of obstruction and served a one-year conditional sentence at home, a home which was just down the alley from the murders that gave her 365 days to relive her part in it. J.R. was released from prison in 2016. Her whereabouts are unknown. In the van with the undercover officer, Jeremy said, as soon as she gets released, she's going to come visit me, and she's going to be there for me when I get released. Society can only hope that that never happens. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Byron Smith. He retired from his job as a top-level security engineer for the government and put down roots in Little Falls. Little did he know his neighbor's children would rob him of his possessions and one day his freedom. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.